Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner, episode 287 on the network. Uh, before we bring Jim in, just want to thank our faithful audience, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices, 50,000 plus subscribers. We appreciate your support. Helped us get on iHeartRadio as the newest podcast stream on there. You can continue to find us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, but we're making a big boom on iHeart right now. So support that that new partnership that we have. Um, with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thank you. A lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on in uh, baseball, both on the field, off the field, and uh, of course, we're concentrating on giving out whatever valuable advice might be uh, receptive to parents of uh, of young athletes. Yeah, and then we've got a, we've got a couple really hard hitting topics today, and it was it was appropriate because you, you brought them both up to me, but it was it was questions that were asked in a broad sense uh, by our audience in terms of behavior at youth tournaments, parallel behavior on field with with, with antics with some of the players. Um, but before we get into that, I want to ask you, I had, had a special guest on before you today, uh, Danny Tiant, Louis Tiant's son. He's an agent for, um, he's a player agent right now uh, and uh, does a phenomenal job for his client base. But uh, we were talking about Louis Tion's push for the Hall of Fame this year. You were a teammate of his. What, what, what's your recollection of Louis as a teammate? Yeah, I'd sure like to, if I'm on one of those era committees, you know, the the 300 win thing has long been an automatic. But there are a lot, uh, you know, Sandy Koufax uh, won 160-some. He had six dominant years. There are other pitchers out there that I think are Hall of Fame worthy. Mickey Lolich, Mike Cuellar that had, you know, six, seven dominant years. And then Louis who uh, I saw pitch against us when I was with the Twins. One of his first starts struck out 19 in 10 innings. He was part of a great rotation in Cleveland with uh, Sam McDowell and uh, Sonny Siebert was in that that mix, Steve Hargan. And then I became teammates with Louie in uh, Minnesota briefly and also with the Yankees. Probably the funniest teammate that I've ever played with and, and the teammate that for the most part, was always in a great mood. And uh, when he, uh, you know, he had a crack in his shoulder blade and the twins really didn't believe it. They thought he was wanting to go on the injured list so he'd get paid to start the season, be on the disabled list. So they released him. And he ended up in Richmond pitching for my friend Jack McKeon. And then the Braves owned him at the time and the Red Sox wisely got a hold of him somehow. And the career he had in Fenway Park is legendary. He's still so popular up there. That's what his son Danny uh, told us too, to to the point where they can't even go outside. Everybody just loves him to pieces. And I think he was he he had a cameo on the uh, the Boston based sitcom Cheers way back when when him and Sam Malone were filming a commercial together. The fictitious character where, where Mayday came in and relieved him late in the commercial. But uh, yeah, he spoke fondly of you. Danny said his dad uh, had fond memories of you as well, and. Um, 
about Cooperstown. The talk of him getting in Cooperstown would be a nice segue into our first topic here, if that's where we want to begin with Cooperstown um, youth tournaments. Well, you know, I heard from some of my folks here in Vermont that took their kids to Cooperstown, and I think by and large, it has been a, a positive experience for uh, most kids. I think my, my two oldest grandsons went there, but what might be taking over from the pure enjoyment or love of the game is we have some of these West Coast teams flying in there on private jets, and it's all about competition and their their players to hear it from uh, from the East Coast side, uh, New Jersey, Vermont, is that their their players look like they're twenty years old, you know, and yeah. uh, so it's become you know I think too much of a of a competition and. Uh, instead of just an enjoyment. And at that stage of life, it should be, certainly, you, you play your best and you want to win, but you don't try to reconstruct your team to, you know, overshadow the other teams there, whether it's picking out the biggest kids, as you and I have talked about. I think there should be physical uh, parameters as to what kids play in what groups. And uh, so that's kind of the downside I hear. And and then attitudes get a little frayed, and uh, there's a little bullying and fighting, and uh, we we got to guard against that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I blame Major League Baseball in some part, kind of segueing into a, another side of it, is that all this in-game celebration and dancing, and uh, you know, we've forgotten about what a privilege it is to play the game. And just look at what's ahead of you and play the game and forget about all the extraneous stuff that draws attention to yourself. Yeah. Well, go, going back to Cooperstown, now the, the whole environment, I, I agree with you. The, the premise of it is wonderful. It's bringing kids in from all over the country, even the world. There's a socialization aspect to it, even the way they bunk the kids. I mean, they're together for, for the most right. part. Umpires are together. So when you do that, um, it, it comes it comes off wonderful. But when as you're mentioning, there's, and I see it firsthand now, I went from the college game to now where I'm helping my kids out with grassroots. And it's almost like if people think you're joking about private planes and the term I like to use is mercenaries, they'll have a, a little team and then they'll bring in seven, eight kids from other organizations, even other states to be a part of it with the sole purpose of getting a medal or a ring at the end of it. Um, and of course, we everybody wants to win, but winning the right way is, is the, the part that's missed. What are some specifics, if you're allowed to talk about them anyway, of things that, or you can talk in general terms that kind of took away from that intended environment. Well, I think from the Vermont kids, it was the teams from out West that were bigger and stronger and better. I know my son-in-law took his, uh, my two grandsons there and said, look, if we win one game, we'll, we'll be fortunate, but let's have a good time, meet some kids. And, and I think when you, when you see kids, and this is at the direction of coaches, uh, marching single file in uh, military style with their uniforms on, like not wanting to talk to the other kids, you know, taking the competition to that level with the behavior, uh, that that's not good. And I don't know these kids that are on winning teams, it would be interesting to see what happened to them or happens to them when they get to be like college age and what happens to their lives, what are they going to do? Well, they look back on it and say, man, I took that way too serious. The coaches pushed us too hard. I'll use a couple of examples. Bodie Miller, 
And I had lunch with a couple yesterday and this uh, subject came up because I said I do a podcast and I'd like to reach out to to parents and young athletes and, and try to get youth baseball and youth sports to be enjoyable and not so highly competitive and not create so much peer pressure. And Bodie Miller, the world champion skier, when asked, who do you fear the most? And he said, it's the competitors that I know are doing it because they love it, not because they're doing it to please somebody else. Yeah. And I think in, in baseball and other youth sports, we have a lot of young players because of peer pressure, the kid next door is doing it, the dad wants to coach. Maybe they're not really doing it because they actually love it. And one of the coaches that coached his sons for a couple of years and then later in life was asked about that. And he said, pre-high school, you have to let them do what they love. And if they love it enough, they'll get interested in it, but don't push them into it. I thought about my own life from that standpoint, because there was nothing as an eight or a nine-year-old I loved better than to going out in the summer with four or five of my buddies and playing baseball. I had a passion for it. I noticed with my two oldest grandsons, and this is not a criticism, it's just a way of life, but uh, one day it was a, a game time and my son-in-law said, hey, you guys got to get your uniform on. We got to leave here in a short period of time. And I thought, really? Nobody had to tell me to put my uniform on. If the game started at seven that night, I probably had my uniform on at four. So, bed, right? so I think, you know, sometimes you know, parents have to sit back and say, does my child, is he really doing this for the love of it? Or would he rather be learning how to play the piano or something like that. And I think parents have to be conscious of not uh, pushing themselves. You know, we had an example here in in Vermont where uh, uh, my friend happens to have a son that plays on that team. And and uh, he's a coach that was coaching third base. And a, and a mother came out of the stands in the middle of the game and said, I have to talk to you right now about, you know, my son. <laughs> That's what it's coming to. And uh we got to somehow cut back on that. And, and it's, uh, I can't change it, but I think parents can change it. I, I agree. It's, I get asked all the time. I, I coached for 22 years collegiately and um, people always want to ask me, are kids different nowadays? I said, they're not. Parenting's different nowadays. And that's why the kids are different. You brought up a good point and, and you used the word love. Um, a phrase that my dad used to say to me all the time, my mom reiterated it in, in her way was, if you love something enough, no one can ever take it away from you. And I share that with kids in sports. And, and I want to get your take on that. It doesn't matter where you bat in the lineup. It doesn't matter what position you're playing. Learn them all. As long as the coach gives you a bat, you got a fair chance up there. Um, you know, whether you're batting ninth or first. But if you love the game enough or whatever it is your your passion is, there's nothing anybody can do to you that can take that away from you. I mean, that, that, to me, that, that was a great message I got early from my parents, and that sticks with me today. Yeah, I think my oldest grandson is a good example of that. I'm going to see them this afternoon on a trip to New York, and uh, Brendan was an outstanding high school basketball player at Ridgewood. Uh, I think he played a little club basketball at the University of Michigan. He probably could have been a good D3 player, but he, he went to a D1 school. But even today in Ridgewood, he plays in basketball leagues because he loves to play basketball. And he has some buddies that like to do the same thing. So that's where he's carrying it on to play it as long as he can. 
not because anybody is pushing him, but because he loves it. Yeah. That, and that's, that's what you want for all your kids, for the parents out there. And I, I can attest to this now I'm, I'm uh, coaching kids. It's a 16 and under age bracket, but most of our kids are 14 and 15. And still at that age, the teams with the biggest pituitary issues, the ones that are bigger, stronger, they're going to win the games more often than not. And it's, it's a war of attrition. It's keeping that kid loving the game, constant improvement. And if you stick with it, and I think I'm a testament to it. I'm 5'10", 165 on a good day. And my former teammates will argue with me, but I'll, I'll disagree. I don't think I was ever the best player in any team I played on as a young kid. I was toward the top, but um, you just keep keep at it and keep moving, keep loving it, and, and you, you'll outlast some people um, in that regard. So. But, yeah, uh, I think uh, I I could I could double up on what you said. We had a we had a young man. He uh, say he was a young man then, as I was in high school. Doug has passed away last few years a few years ago. But uh, I had a high school pitcher that's big country boy, much bigger than I was, and man, he was good. But you know, he liked cars. He just he just didn't like baseball. He was successful in in high school. But if I said, hey, Doug, there's a tryout camp coming up. No, he would have no interest, and so uh, he his love was in in another field. Even though he he was talented, he was much more talented and bigger and stronger than I was. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, with all young kids, if you have the love and the desire, you don't need your parents pushing you. You don't need uh, coaches pushing you. Uh, if you have the love and desire, you, you're going to follow through on it and take it as as far as it'll take you. Yeah. I agree. And in that whole uniform thing, um, I got in trouble my first games. I think I was seven or eight years old. I woke up in the morning for school. I was wearing my uniform to school that day. And my parents yeah. said, no, 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 we can't do that. Well, that- at the big league level, I think it actually brought a tear to my eye. But when my friend Bruce Souter was inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, he invited me to be there. And uh, and he said, uh, I'm going to call you out, so be prepared to stand up. So he had me stand up. And he said, I never played with any player who had more pride in putting on a major league uniform every day. And that really touched me because I, that's what I always thought. You know, I wasn't interested in celebrating until you got into the clubhouse or putting on a show, but I just thought every day when there was one of those big league uniforms hanging in my locker, I thought, what a privilege. You know, they only give out a few hundred of these and there's hundreds of thousands that would like to be wearing one. So have some pride in wearing it and be grateful for it. I think that's probably the greatest compliment you can get from a from a uh, fellow big leaguer that you get yeah. suitor at the at the greatest stage too. So that's I smile too when when you said that out loud. I think that's phenomenal. If you were, you know, obviously the the, the parents in your community see you as a pillar in the community and obviously a strong voice in baseball and respect your opinion. If you were to gather those those kids and parents together and give them a mindset to approach Cooperstown, whether baseball in general, what would it be? Well, I think I would, I would ask based on the kind of knowledge I'm gathering as, uh, as days go by is uh, I would ask those kids, are you, are you doing this? Cause you really love it. You like being around your buddies. You like playing the game or are you doing it because, well, everybody in the neighborhood does it. And uh, you know, my dad coaches, or if I don't play, my buddies are going to say what's wrong with you. So, Deep down in, do you do it because you really love it? And then I think to parents, uh, this would never go over, but uh, I think what 
somebody should experiment with this somewhere along the line is they should take their kids to play the game and then all get together and go out for dinner and pick them up after the game and see what the reaction of the kids is into how they enjoyed it, how they played, you know, and have the coaches, sure, you try to win, but up until, as this former coach had said, he said, before high school, you just have to let them do what they love. You can't make competition the number one priority at that age until they reach a point where they say, hey, I can do this. As Bob Gibson said in the documentary, The Fastball, he said, you know, I loved it because I found out I was good at it. And he said, I knew I was good at it. So I wanted to keep playing. <laughs> so that's what will take you to the next level. But until you get to that level, play for the enjoyment of it. Yeah, I think it's great advice. And actually, there's two two former, well, they, they weren't teammates, but they're, they're former twins players, Jack Jones and Doug Mankiewicz. Um, I've uh, been trying to connect with them. We've got a couple people in between. They share the same sentiments as you. So I know that's a a generation before you, but as we talk about passing this knowledge down, there, there's some guys out there um, that really believe in what we're talking about, especially with the youth. So we'll have to use the twins connections to try to reel them in and get them to voice their opinions on, on our show here at some point in time. So Jack Jones. Well, I think Jack Jones might admit that he was influenced by the great Harmon Killebrew because Harmon influenced the twins, not only the way he carried himself, but the way he signed his name. So I think he was at a banquet with Jock in the wintertime and Jock signed a baseball and Harmon looked at it and he said, is that your signature? And Jock said, yes. Jock will correct me if I'm wrong. It might've been Johan Santana, but it was one of the players there. And he said, well, why wouldn't you want to write your name so those people know who you are? So when you talk to Joe Maurer, Justin Morneau, Michael Kadire, all these great twins in recent times, they all took that from Harmon and were very disciplined in signing their autographs so people could read it and understand it and know who you are. Yeah, that's pride. Pride in who you are and, and pride in what you're doing at all times. I, I, I like that. We'll have to push to get them to get them a bigger voice too because I think they're too – young guy, or well, they're young, they're retired now, but two younger guys that uh, believe in the same things you're believing. So whether it's the twins, whether it's the generation, whether it's the influence of, of you and your former teammates on them, there's been an impact. We just have to keep that rolling with it. So talking about twins now, uh, Royce Lewis, um, wonderful, wonderful young talent um, coming, coming into the spotlight for maybe some wrong reasons right now. You know, I was shocked. I met Royce Lewis when he was number one draft pick, met his family, just a polite young man, uh, went through some terrible times and being injured to, de you know, kind of stall his career for a while. And now he's, he's on a track to become a superstar. He actually is choreographing the different dances and celebrations when he hits a home run. But it's come back to bite him because last night he had to leave the game with a hamstring injury. And I was kind of sarcastically saying to my broadcast partner, who I used to work twins games with, I said, you know, I know from dancing, those hamstrings can be stressed a little bit. So you, you don't want to do that in the baseball field. You just do it on the dance floor. But yeah, when he starts choreographing and, and putting on a show like that, I just think, I don't want to be a member of the Minnesota Twins and see that going on. They have a, a fine young 
left-hand hitter named Matt Walner hit another home run last night. He hits a home run. He drops a bat, trots around the bases. But I think Royce – and I'm, I'm shocked that the head of baseball ops or the manager or a veteran player – and the Twins have several former players on there as advisors, like uh, Mike Kadire, Justin Morneau, Torrey Hunter. Uh, maybe they're talking to him. Uh, I, I'm from a different era, but that's just not a that's just not setting a good example for the youth. Nor is it necessary. There's plenty of time to celebrate when the game's over and you go in the clubhouse and your team has won the game. You don't have to put on that kind of a show on the field to draw attention to yourself. And, and he looks at his, his model is Justin Jefferson from the Vikings, oh. you know, and the way the NFL now is MLB going to turn into the NFL where everything is about in the cameras pan to it celebrations in the end zone. You don't want to be a part of that. Carry yourself like a professional, respect the game, respect what the guys before the Willie Mays, the Hank Aaron's, the Joe DiMaggio's respect what they did and what they made this game, and don't make a clown show out of it. Yeah. No, and I two, two questions on on that one with, with Royce Lewis. Let's say Royce Lewis was transplanted back to 1977, 75, any, any, anywhere in the 70s, 60s, 50s. If he did antics like that, well, how would that have been handled um, internally with his team and then, and of course, externally with the other team? Yeah. Well, I, I think, first of all, Dave, I don't think if Royce Lewis was raised in that era, he would never be motivated to do that because we were trained differently. Fair point. So it, would, it wouldn't be him. It would be the people that have trained him. I mean, if, if you just as a young player started doing that, you would immediately be stopped by your coach or whoever it was and say, no, wait a minute. That, that's that's kind of disrespecting the game. We don't play it that way. We don't operate that way. So I don't think that would ever, you know, I would would ever happen. There were a few cases of guys like to showboat a little bit. We called them hot dogs. Willie Montanez was one. And Willie would hit a home run, and he would make a very slow, deliberate trot around the bases. And I remember in our first base dugout when I was with the Phillies, he coming out of the box, he came very close to the dugout, and he just did it with a smile. He said, I know you're going to lock, knock me down, but I don't care. I'm going to enjoy this. Well, sure, he did. And then, yeah, he got knocked down <laughs> for yeah. sure. But it was rare to find somebody to do that in that era. Yeah, that, and that, that's kind of what I was getting at. That, and, and you made the point very well. It wasn't tolerated at home. It wouldn't have been tolerated with his youth teams coming up. And certainly it wouldn't have been tolerated with his teammates and the opponent at that time. So there have been a lot of checks and balances yeah, I look at it myself. If I were raised in this era, I mean, everything would be different. My my parents, you know, if they were raised in this era, would be different than they were coming up through, you know, the early 1900s when times were tough. So you were raised differently. So it, it's so hard to compare. But what it points out is that today, when we see the actions of some of these athletes, it's a reflection of of lack of discipline by their parents or a lack of pride in the game of baseball to play it the right way and act the, and act the right way. And that comes from coaches and parents. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, you'll be, you'll be glad to hear that I'm clinging to the old, old fashioned ways. I'm, I figure if I hang on long enough, I may come back in style. So that this, yeah, right. this house is being raised to, to, to do it the way, the way you and I are talking about. But, um, 
I, I, you know, I, I liken it back to, you mentioned, uh, upbringing, you know, I, I played multiple sports coming up. So same thing. I didn't have the issue of doing home run trials cause I was not a home run hitter, but, um, things like fist pumping, uh, showing outward emotion, which I, I, some people are emotional. Like my wife was a, is, is, was a college basketball player. She was more emotional as a player than I was. Um, but, uh, I was taught that that was, uh, that would reveal something to your opponent. Don't know what, but you could reveal something to him that could allow him to beat you. And that was kind of my motivation. The other thing was you don't disrespect who you're playing. You don't disrespect the game. Even to the point I played football growing up where you score a touchdown, you run over and hand it to the referee. You don't spike yeah. it. You don't do a dance. You know? So again, I, I agree with what you're saying, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate. But yeah. The NFL has become a show in that regard. Everybody's got an end zone dance. And, uh, and, and I, I'd want to make it clear that I, there is nothing wrong with spontaneous emotion. It's not like you have to, not have a smile on your face. And I think opponents respect that too. I remember, you know, Joe Carter, when he hit first base and he run the game winning home run, he was jumping on first base. Kirby Puckett had his arm in the air. Yeah. Derek Jeter had his arm in the air. There's nothing wrong with spontaneous uh, emotion, but when it becomes choreographed, right, where you're like purposely calling attention to yourself out there because of what you did, that's just wrong and disrespectful. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a huge distinction. I hope the the young kids grab onto that out there, and I think in in, in ways they're they're they may be practicing that stuff more than they do their actual game in some regards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, flashing back to my era. If you got a base hit, looking in the dugout or raising five fingers to your teammates, uh, or even on a home run, your your first instinct if it was a hit in the outfield was to make the proper turn at first and keep turning to see if the outfielder bobbled the ball and you could take an extra base nobody better at that than pete rose oh yeah but but now you know and again i blame i blame coaches you'll see a guy get a base hit and he barely has reached first base uh you know when the ball uh when the ball is beginning to be thrown back in the infield and boy that's got to take some uh that's got to take some motivation from managers and coaches that are in charge of this game. But um, unfortunately you have a lot of staffs that, that have coaches on it really that have not been baseball players. They, you know, they're, um, they're numbers guys. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to pick on the Orioles here for a second. Um, and I hope it's okay, but I, I love the way they're playing good young team. I was watching a game the other night and, and I blame major league baseball for, for, and this is comes back to what your point is here. Uh, something happened, run scored, they come in and they had a funnel in the dugout, which gave the appearance of, you know, funneling beer. I'm, I'm guessing it was water or, or some Gatorade or something like that. Um, huge, huge promotion on it. The announcers were talking about it, that the cameras were on it. Um, it became a, a very big display every time they scored. Now, I take it back to we talk about uh, playing the game the right way. This past week uh, is the, the anniversary where Cal Ripken played his last game to end the streak. Not a single mention on the Orioles game. Not a celebration, not a throwing him throwing out the first pitch, not everybody wear number eight. Uh, you know, they didn't even wow. do a funnel, funnel for him. Um, so I, I kind of blame Major League Baseball in a way for glorifying what we're talking about today with, you know, where we say choreographed celebration where you've got that getting play, but Cal Ripken getting none. 
Boy, that, that's shocking. I didn't realize that. The the funnel, I wonder if that has to, I know there's a, there's a concession item, I think, called the funnel cakes. And there is, yeah. In Baltimore. I don't know if that has something to do with it, but yeah, I'm, I'm shocked that uh, they wouldn't have called attention to, uh, you know, to Cal Streak and what he meant to the, uh, to the organization. If it was the, I, I did that game. It was a Yankee game when all of a sudden uh, somebody else ran out to shortstop that uh, September game. Yeah, they walked in. They walked him out with a lineup card that day. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I was. I was surprised because I. Do, I've always liked following the Orioles. Uh, I've liked the. You know, their when they had the Oriole way. Um, was a big Ripken fan. In fact, I met him when he was eighteen or nineteen in Rochester, New York. I was brought to a baseball camp there by my dad. Had no idea he was Cal Ripken, but he was a junior. I was a junior. He was coached by his dad. I was coached by mine, and we both played shortstop at that time. And I got to warm up with him, and he gave me a pack of cards that day, which was his uh, very first baseball card. And I still have that that set, the Rochester team. Yeah, that's cool. My, the first game I really announced between two professional teams was during the strike of 1981. It was Syracuse at Rochester, and uh, Cal was the shortstop. He – I think Bob Bonner started that day, but it was the Rochester. Uh, it was a Rochester team against Syracuse. That was my uh, with Ralph Kiner. That was my first professional broadcast, nineteen eighty-one. Oh, nice, nice. You didn't keep the lineup card for that day, did you? No, I didn't get oh. it. No, <laughs> nice. I uh, well, I, I've got a question for, especially as a pitcher. We talk about you know the different way you know kids are chasing velocity nowadays and. There's arbitrary pitch counts. Uh, we had a, and this has happened to this young man several times. Blake Snell uh, with the Rays, seven innings yesterday. I think he got taken out with a no hitter. Uh, 104 pitches he had thrown. Um, thoughts on that? Well, I think Blake uh, put those limitations on himself. Yeah, he he basically says I'm not used to going nine. I think that he is he is one of the pitchers, and he's having a great year. But I think he has fallen into that trap of, or if you want to call it a trap. He is conditioned to pitch seven innings, and when he pitches seven innings, he feels like he's pitched a complete game. So he's not disappointed at all uh, that they took him out of the game because basically that's the way he was raised in the Tampa organization. Remember when he had that lights-out performance in the World Series and they they took him out and the Rays end up losing the game? Yeah. I mean, I think most other pitchers would have been would have been fighting Kevin Cash to say, are you kidding me? Uh, I told Sandy Koufax, I said, man, I wish they had those rules in effect. When you beat us in game seven in 1965, they've taken you out after the fifth inning. <laughs> but uh, it's it's the way the pitchers are conditioned by the people that are training them and conditioning and handing down the information, which I think is totally against everything that pitching's all about. They're just dumbing it down and training pitchers so wrongly that Every day you see a very effective starting out uh, outing by a starter. Oops, Sonny Gray would be an example. Sonny Gray could be a Cy Young candidate with the Twins. I don't know how many no decisions he has, but he pitches so many games, six, seven innings where he's he's lights out and he's just not trained to go any deeper than that. And he could be. And now coming up to postseason, that would be really important to have a a guy like Zach Gallen, if the Diamondbacks get there, Zach Gallen will do it. Oh yes, he will. Yeah. What and and you mentioned what pitch? What should pitching be about? 
Well, I think pitching in the minor leagues and in spring training should be about uh, about training them to condition their arm in spring training, get ready to start the season. It shouldn't be spring performance. It's spring training. I remember years ago when Terry Collins was managing the Mets and I was in doing some homework for my broadcast uh, job and Matt Harvey walked by and he said, yeah, Matt's pitching today. He said, uh, cause I think, I don't know if he had had the surgery then, but he'd had some kind of an injury he was coming back from. And he said, he threw it a hundred miles an hour the other day. I said, what in spring training, who's allowing him to do that? And Jacob deGrom did the same thing. Why would you even think, of, of throwing 100 miles in spring tra- an hour, if you're capable of doing that, to impress somebody. Spring training should be a gradual, a few innings at a time, then you work up to five, then you work up to seven. The relievers pitch, like, say, every three days, four days, and they, they work up to every two days, and they have a period of time where they pitch every day. You work your way up uh, to start the season. Now, there are cases where a young player is trying to make the team, and performance could be important to him. But I think also the player has to trust the eyes of the people in charge to know even if he if he didn't have a great spring, conditions are different. The wind's blowing out. It's so much easier to hit a home run in those Florida parks in the spring because the wind blows out. So you have to trust the eyes of the experts to say, yeah, this kid's ready. He can play. But now we see in spring training – it's performance immediately. And I think that's where uh, a lot of our injuries are coming from. And then of course the innings restrictions and the pitches restrictions, that's what's dumbing down pitching. And, and I know a lot of it has to go with physical and mental training, but, and, and if I'm wrong, tell me I was not a pitcher. I was a hitter. Wouldn't it take going out there one time to see what it's like when you don't feel like you're like Snell saying, Hey, I, I don't feel mentally, physically like I've been prepared for this, but how else do you know how to prepare for it unless you go through it? I think Alex Cora did that the other day with Brian Bellow, who's a great young pitcher for the Red Sox. He just kind of challenged him to stay out there and get through the inning, and he did. And and again, it's just training. Uh, we weren't supermen pitching 300 innings or you know a lot of complete games. We were trained to do that. And the players today are bigger, faster, stronger. Somewhere along the line, some expert, uh, which still hasn't been proven, thinks that they're protecting pitchers' arms, but they're not. Pitchers would be much more better off throwing a little more, particularly between starts, and then doing something. In my particular case, it was fielding ground balls, shagging fly balls. That's where you use your legs and off the mound, not in the weight room. And uh, you bring up Louis Tiant. Louis Tiant and I, if we pitched six innings in a spring training game, we would go down to the bullpen. And when the opposition got up to hit in the seventh, we would get up. And at about 80%, we would face an imaginary four hitters with a catcher. And just like you were pitching in a game, then we'd sit down, we'd get up again. We may pitch 11 innings down there, but, but no stress. You know, you're not trying to throw hard. You're trying to use your legs and find the rhythm and tempo of your motion, which that's what pitching's all about, is a repeatable motion that allows you to throw the ball close to where you want to throw it every time. And you don't develop that by trying to throw as hard as you can and only throwing every five days. And in the case of the number one draft pick for the Pirates now, he pitched six and two-thirds innings 
And they said, he's checked all the boxes. We've seen all we need from him. That's all he's going to pitch. You're, you're not going to de- develop into a, a, a veteran, into a, a pitcher that you can depend on to log a lot of innings and be consistent with his control if that's all you're going to allow him to pitch. How often in a game would, would you max out your velocity over, over the course of a game when you were pitching in the big leagues? I don't, I don't think I ever maxed it out to the point where I'm going to throw it as hard as I can. But Johnny Sain used to say, and of course I mentioned that name before, my favorite pitching coach, uh, he would say every now and then you have to kind of let one go at a little more than you you have been throwing it all of a, uh, up high, and all of a sudden the hitter kind of reacts to, whoa, where'd that come from? You know, just to show them that it's there if you needed it. That might kind of open their eyes. But I, I, I didn't ever – I wanted contact, and uh, that's why I like to pitch batting practice. We always pitch batting practice between, between starts and a lot of it in spring training, and we call it pitching practice because – uh, like if Tom Kelly, who later went on to manage the Twins, uh, and Charlie Manuel, who I've been in touch with in recent days, Charlie going through that health issue, and he's getting better, thankfully. Uh, I'd say, how many swings you have today? Ten. I said, okay, first five are for you. Here it is. Then the next five are for me. So I want to. I want. I read the bat. I might put a little extra on. I might take a little off. Might throw him a breaking ball, and that's really how you learn how to pitch. These young kids nowadays, and we started with talking about uh, the young kids in Vermont going to Cooperstown, but they seem to be throwing max velocity every time they touch a ball. That's what Josh Donaldson told me a couple of years ago in uh, in Minnesota uh, when he was there. You know, he was he said you invited contact, didn't you? I said, yeah, I like contact. I, uh, not just lay it in there, hit it. I wanted to force contact with a good pitch in the strike zone. And a, a perfect game for me would be uh, 27 pitches, 27 outs. But he said now every pitch that he sees is designed for him to swing and miss. And I said, and every swing you take is designed to hit it out of the ballpark. And that's the big difference in the game today versus years ago is that that's the example of uh, of power in the three the three outcomes. Uh, the guy who has really taken that to the highest level is Kyle, Sh- Kyle Schwarber. Yeah, I mean he's hitting a buck eighty or something, but he runs into enough pitches where he's hitting home runs and knocking in key runs. So you know he is the prototype modern player, modern hitter. That's a great phrase. Runs into it because that's what it, what it looks like sometimes. And to the young kids out there, and I, I can honestly say, you know, four years of college baseball, three years of professional baseball. Maybe one or two times I, I maxed out on my swing. Just It was just the right count, the right setting. But if anybody's out there ever maxed a swing out, uh, I don't know what it likes to max a throw out because I was a second baseman. But uh, it hurts if you miss. So I don't know well, how. That's where, that's where in recent times, and I didn't hear these till I don't know, the last eight, ten years, that's where the game to me really has changed in the last decade or so, is the oblique injury. And if you go underneath, say, in the tunnel at Yankee Stadium or any of the other new ballparks and you see those batting cages, guys are in there just swinging one right after the other. And when you do that over 162 games plus spring training and you're doing it with with a lot of force, uh, that's where these oblique injuries are coming from. Yeah. And you use, use the phrase rhythm and timing. And we talk about balance. 
I find it hard to maintain that or make that a priority if I'm out there cutting loose every time. Yeah, I find I liken it to uh, to the way I practice golf. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, control, balance and timing. And you have to you have to find a swing speed for yourself or in baseball or a, a pitching motion yourself where you can have control, where you finish on balance and you have the necessary timing to release the ball and throw it where you want to throw it. And uh, you don't get that by trying to throw with maximum effort. No, I think that's a, that's a great message to the kids. I know we, we'd, uh, I promise you I'd, I'd get you out of here on time today to get your car. We're, we're a little over 40 minutes here. What, uh, what messages do you want to leave the audience with today? What do you want to tease them with for next week? What haven't well, we covered? I think it'll be interesting switching to a big league level now to see uh, the Orioles are holding up quite nicely, uh, but it's going to be interesting to see as the teams get closer to uh, postseason how they arrange their pitching. You know, they're – you look back, there are a lot of teams that have a, a strong one-two punch. The Twins have uh, Sonny Gray, Pablo Lopez. Orioles are pitching Bradish tonight. So managers will start. Uh, there's that There's that blend of you have to clinch it first, but you also have an eye on how am I going to set up my, uh, my pitching because you have so many of these series you have to go through now to get to the World Series. What we're looking at for the first five and a half months, this is just a qualifying tournament. Yeah. Where that uh, six teams get in in in, in every league. And, uh, you know, so when you're looking at, what is there, 15 teams in the league, you're looking at 40% of the teams are going to the to the playoffs just to get in. And once you get in, uh, then then it's the tournament that's like the final four. Yeah, it's it's not even it's no longer even an advantage to win your division to win your your league, um, and and the way it used to be where way back when it was just the top the top team from the American League played the top team in the National. Eventually, we've got to this everybody gets in mentality. Now the Orioles haven't been there in a while. The Rays seem to be there every year. How much of that is an advantage, or I guess you'd say a disadvantage for the Orioles not having been there? You know, I, I think young kids today are so much better conditioned to the pressures of September baseball. They've seen it on television. Uh, the competition they're playing against us, they're not awed by it like I was if I were looking at a Mickey Mantle or a Ted Williams that you didn't see on television all the time. I think they're much more apt uh, to be able to handle it. And I think the the managers like, say, a Brandon Hyde with the Orioles, they do a great job. But as well. The the other thing is that with the college influence on the big league game, they're playing against guys, uh, I liken it to the PGA Tour, where a lot of these top players now are playing against guys that they've played junior golf, college golf. Yeah. So they're not awed by the competition. And so I don't know that the experience plays as big a factor as it did years ago. I think it still is a factor where it might allow you to be comfortable when the situation's uncomfortable because you've been there before. No, that's, that's a great point. And, um, you know, t- t- Tampa seems to be doing things. Uh, I mean, they seem to be there every year. And we just recently saw Boston get rid of their uh, president, GM, Hein Bloom. Uh, we talked a little bit on the show today about some potential uh, replacements there with, with Kevin Kernan and myself and Danny Tia. Any thoughts on the, the Boston situation? Anybody you'd like to see? get a crack at that? You know, Dave, I have no idea. I've, I've seen in the Boston papers that they, 
They think Eddie Romero is qualified. He's been their organization, but that's where the, uh, you know, Sam Kennedy and, and the, and the powers that be there in Boston have to have to do their homework. And I'm sure there's some people out there that we've never heard of that might be the best guy to, to lead the direction. And no question that they have to be familiar with analytics because that's what's driving the game. But I wouldn't have any idea. I mean, if, if, if it were up to me, I'd turn around and say, let's bring Whitey Herzog out of retirement. But that's, right. that's not going to happen. <laughs> Get Jack McKeon back in. And um, but there was a strong push this morning for Brian Sabian, kind of what he did in San Francisco and seeing if he could uh, duplicate that in Boston, but they'd have to pry him away from the Yankees consulting job to, to get him. So, but uh, well, no, gr- great show today. I know you got to, you got to hit the road and see the grandkids uh, out in New York, but uh, I think it's a great parting shot. I think great message to the kids up in Vermont, keep doing things the right way, keep doing what they're doing. And maybe if we can get uh, get the ear of Jack Jones and Doug Mankiewicz, we can employ them to get the ear of Royce Lewis here and maybe stop. Yeah. Stop dancing in the field and, and follow your lead and, and get it done in a, later on in the evening, right? Right. That would be great. <laughs> so, well, great show today, Jim. I appreciate, uh, appreciate what you do. And um, any, any, any last message you want for the kids out there? Or you, you... No, I, I think just what we kind of talked about through the game. You, you play it because you love it. Don't play it because somebody is pushing you to do it. No, I love that's a great message to, to end on. And to our audience out there, 50,000-plus Thanks for your push to get us on iHeartRadio. Um, we have a very sophisticated group, and you've got the best of the best here with Jim Cott giving you sound advice. So I hope you took notes and passed that along to the kids in your community and, uh, and can keep doing things the right way. But episode 287 here with Cott's Corner on Real Voices of the Game. We thank you again. Make sure you give Jim five stars today and write some great comments under there. And keep loading us with questions. We'll, we'll, we'll respond next week with Cott's Corner here. Thanks again, Jim. Thank you, Dave. Selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is.